Good day, ladies, gents, girls, gays, theys, and those from all the gender highways. I am back so that you may feast heartily upon my past traumas until I can add some extra voices to the discussion. Handful of brief announcements first. In an effort to ensure that no traumas are left behind, I would like to say I do have plans to explore traumas of all shapes and sizes. Keep in mind that as I entertain you first with my childhood trauma, we have yet to even tiptoe into marital trauma. And ladies, lest we even start on patriarchal trauma. How about traumas unique to those in the LGBTQIA communities? or simply the human condition, societal trauma, environmental trauma. I mean, the list keeps growing, but there is even a small segment I will introduce later in this episode that I hope will become a relatively regular one called Tiny Little Traumas. For those moments where we could all have the tiniest little shit turn us into an absolute basket case. Hey, so uh, remember my punk ass? Yeah, I'm back so that you can feast heartily upon my past traumas. You know, until I can get somebody to come and join this echo chamber, maybe ricochet around a couple of voices. I know you've been absolutely biting your nails in anticipation until you could find out more little tidbits on how the fuck I even made it to adulthood. And I am here but to oblige. Yeah, I know, it's been way too long, so allow me to just say that I'm sure you could tell based on the gap between episodes that I obviously didn't strike it rich, tantalizing the airways with my tales of what the fuckery. No one hit wonder for me, yet. Does turn out that I do need to pay rent like the rest of you fuckers. Let's just say it's safe to assume that the years where stripping could have paid the bills so that I could support a podcast have long since passed. Regardless of the scene, there's a lid for every pot. Suffice to say that my pot has simply seen some kids, life, accidents, and is bent, dented, scratched to fucking back, and, well, I think there's rust developing. So, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to regular work I go, to while away when I could be absolutely raw dog in life if I were on an island. And before anyone fucking suggests it, I'm looking at you, Carlos. I'm not going to start an OnlyFans with fucking feet pics or farts in a jar and deal with a proverbial sea of weirdos that would unleash. You want to help a sister out and go get some petties and knock yourself out and use that to become a paid supporting listener of Trauma Soup. I know that was the weirdest advertising plug I've done yet, but that really puts into perspective, do something strange for some change. I. So quick little anecdote. When I was initially pitching the idea to a friend of starting a podcast that would delve into the trauma that so many of us seem so insistent on carrying around as part of our daily attire, but to address it in a way so as not to handle it with bubble wrap only, but also ripping it apart, making fun of it, kicking it around, making it our collective bitch, there was one thing she told me that really stuck. She said, Mija, whatever you do, keep in mind this is very much like premature ejaculation. Don't blow your trauma load on the first episode. 
So it is with that absolute sage wisdom that I would like to promise you that is literally fucking impossible. Think of this podcast like the apocalypse bunker preppers of traumatic material on so many levels. You thought the trauma pantry had shit fully stocked in there? Wait till I show you the garage. And if that doesn't quite hit the spot, fear not. Allow me to walk you into the warehouse. The simple fact of the matter is we all have lived it. And so many of us are either ashamed of it or allow it to consume us. My response is fuck that. The fact that we collectively as a society, as a species, haven't realized that it is one of the most human things that occurs and haven't successfully built support into every single facet of our society, and we still tiptoe around it, seems in some ways, well, a, a bit lackluster. Okay, out of the tangent room and on to the business of feasting on the fuckery. If you're like me, when you devour podcasts, you read through the titles and summaries so you know what you're signing up for. And you've probably noticed I'm not necessarily the best at filling those out. Look, man, baby steps, okay? Be proud I've lugged my family's skeletons out of the closet again and tried to arrange them in some semblance of order. Either way, you've undoubtedly saw the title confetti shit pies and hopefully you can remember all the fuck back to episode one when i so eloquently described the analogy of my upbringing as a yard filled to the brim with shit piles in which some unsuspecting prat has tripped scattering confetti upon the top of it given how long it has been since the airing of that episode i'll forgive you for needing a refresher the confetti were those rare good memories in my childhood typically they were at the expense of some naive simpleton. However, before I begin shit-talking my birth giver, I am sure there were some that possibly were genuine. Understand that everything that I know firsthand tells me otherwise, but I fully recognize she was an entire human being before I existed. Today, we get to explore some of those confetti moments. Oh, dear listeners, I am currently going through my metaphorical roller decks of early childhood memories, like recipes trying to decide which one to pull out. I do ever enjoy the ones that sort of give you whiplash through time, or the Easter egg clues are hidden with consequences that explode right at the end. And I think I will start with something seemingly light to see what you ultimately make of it. I was my mother's youngest child. At some point, this meant all the older children went to school, and it left me with her quite a bit. Anyone that ever knew me as a young child all knew that I was an absolute handful. Hell, those of you that know me now really need to stop nodding your damn head so hard before it fucking falls off. There were a lot of things that seemed pretty good about this time. For example, I had absolutely nagged incessantly for months to learn how to read, and she had finally taught me to do so. This led to me learning math, evolving to my older school-age siblings, realizing that, hell, if they just taught me the basic principles of their math homework, I would just knock that out for them when they got home, 
they could go play and I was completely okay with that. My mother had started spending actual time with me, which before that I had felt at best just simply tolerated. During this time, she had started writing a short story with me, which was also about me. Um, there were several different things occurring at that time that later as an older, probably preteen going into teener, teenager, I finally understood was a tactic known as love bombing. But when you're about to be five, all you're thinking is that you've finally done something right to get your mother to love you. As the pattern goes with many a narcissistic parent, when they love you, they can make you feel like you are their whole world, the sun that brightens their day. But then something can change and suddenly while many feel that the parent is casting the shadow, a truly gifted narcissist has a way of skillfully making the recipient the owner of that shame, constantly interrogating their own actions, analyzing their every move, finding guilt or shame where there should only be innocence. And I'm only just putting that in there so that you kind of understand that inner tug and turmoil if you've had the benefit of never growing up in that type of a setting. Leading up to my kindergarten year, my mom took this fancy to taking me on a specific route of errands. It felt a little bit like it came out of nowhere and then at the same time it sort of didn't. But the important thing to know is that they all ended at somewhere that she called Le Boutique. She would tell me tales of how wonderful Le Boutique was and how we were going to find the perfect things for my sister to wear there. In case my listeners are currently Googling the 1980s version of Le Boutique in the South, Allow me to spare you the rabbit hole. It is your uh, neighborhood goodwill. So bare minimum once a week, this was a bonding experience we would enjoy. We never got anything for me or for my brothers or for my mother, only my sister. During this time, we were not down on our luck. My sister was not harsh on clothes and she never wore what we purchased. Also, um, Goodwilling was not in fashion and mode. It was not like, oh my God, thrifting's the best thing in the world. You know, it was just, it was a thing for some reason we did. And again, it was called Le Boutique in my house. I began to get a bit invested in this mission as time went on. Um, as I did, I noticed my mother would distract me. If I invented stories of what I thought my sister may do with the outfit, I would end up with ice cream or a trip to the park after Le Boutique in hopes that I would talk about that instead. Eventually, I stopped going altogether and the summer, I would say it was probably about the summer before kindergarten began. Here and there, when we were hurried to get to church or there was like an event, say like a birthday party, um, or like my mother was putting together outfits, I would begin to pipe up with what about this or, you know, 
something like that, and would quickly be quieted. And it was one excuse after another excuse. And then, you know, once my kindergarten year began, that whole experience just quickly faded in the rearview mirror. I wish people would remember that children grow up. They remember quite well. The largest difference between a child and an adult is their vocabulary if their memories are still well enough intact. Sometimes it is with the benefit of retrospect as things fit into place as though it is playing in reverse, but eventually they do fall into place. How your child views you at that point will depend entirely on how you regarded and handled them. If everything they do annoys you, they will remember. If you disrespect the people they love, they will remember. If you don't respect their boundaries, they will remember. It may take decades. It may take growth and inner turmoil and struggles, but eventually they will remember. It was like a big house. To this day, one of the largest I've ever lived in. My stepfather provided us with a comfortable lifestyle. Quite literally, the only thing missing was the white picket fence and probably just because the neighborhood didn't offer them. But if all of the doors were open, a five-year-old me could run completely through it in a donut pattern. And what five-year-old doesn't fucking love donuts? From like my room to the nursery craft room into their room to the bar slash game room. And when I mean bar slash game room, like we're talking like grown-up game room, like fucking pool tables and shit. Down to the family room, living room or kitchen, depending on which door you chose, choose your own adventure there, to the dining, go into the hall so that you could choose which of the kids' rooms you wanted, like, holy shit, right? I mean, by and large, an unimpeded donut. And for the 80s, a single-income household with four kids, several cars, full bar, pool table, I mean, just simply the works. We weren't far from, like, Home Alone's, McAllister's, like, status. All we were missing was, like, the second story. That house backed up to what a five-year-old could simply imagine to be, like, a magical forest. Probably could have been. And it was so peaceful there. In the land of stepfathers, he was a good, even-tempered man. And he busted his ass to provide. He didn't believe in quarreling. And he didn't deserve what would end up happening to him. In the last episode, I made mention that my mother was calculating. This particular maneuver would take over a year. And man, was it a doozy. But I want to make sure I linger on the confetti before we step into those shit pies. There were things about that year plus that I wouldn't trade for the world. 
I gained a brother in that time that would become my favorite brother out of all of them. And granted, I got a front row ticket into how she could so effortlessly take over a brain and just twist it, particularly that of a child. But he was a sweet kid. There were moments where I got to just be, exist, go out into the woods and be a kid. She taught us to catch army ants in a jar. And maybe that was just me, but I think it was all of us. Although this is probably a bad time to tell you, she also taught me how to make them scream, and I may have really enjoyed that bit. Even though she may have had an ulterior motive, she was also at her best during this particular time in our history. Playing perfect mom had its benefits for us. It meant we had moments where we actually got to be children, run wild with reckless abandon, ride our bikes, stay out in the rain and get completely soaked, chase dragonflies, catch lightning bugs. She was not the bake cookies and make hot cocoa type, but she would sometimes regale us with made up nonsense stories when the power went out from a storm. It wasn't all shit pies. Some of it really was confetti. When my cousins would come over, that was where she would shine. She had a way of holding on to the minds of the young, entrancing them, a power she would utilize for good, but also for evil. Roughly the spring of 89, my sister and I were sent to stay with my grandparents for that extended school break. In retrospect, this would be a very important breadcrumb that would fill in the blanks for me. But in the eyes of a five-year-old, it was insignificant in virtually every way, except for the part where we got to exclusively stay with my grandparents without our brothers. That is until they started asking us weird questions about my stepfather. They did the whole divide and conquer thing. And the only error they made was they never asked me the secrets that my mom had me keep. They were so particularly interested in how he treated my sister. The absolute truth was the man was seldom home. And when he was, he was in his armchair watching TV or spending time with his son. Very rarely were we doing anything as a family. To have a moment to do anything squirrely, for lack of a better word, was just simply unlikely. But the testimony of a child wasn't enough. Children don't know their own worlds, evidently. Not long after we got back, my mom told me I was sick and that I needed to stay home from school. That was something that was actually pretty common for my mom. She would often tell us that we were sick, whether we were or not, and we would just get lined up and medicated whenever my mom needed a nap, I guess. But. This particular day, after I had had my nap, she mentioned how much better I looked, even though I had never felt sick. She had still medicated me all the same, and after said nap, we made a trip to Le Boutique. We were on the search for a summer stuff for my sister. We didn't find anything, and instead ended up in a Kmart and got her a new bathing suit. It was a cute one, one that had since faded from memory, though I am certain there are probably photos with my sister in it, because this particular article, my mother made certain 
that my sister wore it to a family get-together the first day that it was warm enough for water-based activities. She had boosted my sister's young ego enough in this particular bathing suit ahead of this particular event to ensure that she would receive compliments in it. May of 1989. Man, I almost made it to six in what felt like a relatively normal upbringing. That is until I come to recognize that of course we're all born into our normal. So I mean, was it really that normal at all? Or, you know, maybe it could have been and then it just changed so abruptly. So, as a child, I woke up really early. My mom had to be on her toes to get up before me. And I know as a parent that probably both frustrated her and exhausted her. And then, of course, as a sibling, being the youngest, it meant that my siblings seldom wanted me in their way. So, my mom had to find things to keep me busy. So, of course, being my mother, she tried to make things like chores seem like tons of fun to me because you know more for her benefit than my own so washing dishes sweeping stuff like that turned it into a game shocking to none that know me I would anger very easily if I was held back now a couple little things to know about a young version of me let's say there were knives that needed washing if she didn't let me do it it would it would anger me because I felt like I was being treated like a baby, even if I was, say, I don't know, three years old. Or let's say glass had broken and I ran to get the broom because, I don't know, she taught me how to sweep for a reason, right? She would yell at me to stop and I would just feel that heat rise in me as, say, you know, a little four-year-old me struggle to articulate the feeling of being infantilized. You know, I, I get it. Here and there, she was probably right. I, I had to give her that. You know, even a broken clock is, is right, you know, twice a day. But it's memories and moments like that which would kind of fuel the gaslighting fires as time would progress. And truth be told, many of those confetti times would as well. It would be the greatest mind game of my childhood years. And she would sometimes use these moments to her advantage. But eventually, as I grew a brain, it would become less advantageous for her. And once that became the case, I would learn it was best to keep things to myself. Also, as I also grew a brain, I mean, speaking of brains, you know, it would become lost in lands of adventure and books and math and whatever else was in front of me. So, you know, I didn't need to be kept entertained in the manners in which she wanted to keep me entertained. But now back to this whole May of 89 thing. This particular morning, awakening early, had its benefits. Some would also say that it provided clarity as the years progressed, especially once you can see things kind of play out in reverse, reverse engineering like a situation. But for the purpose of this episode, allow me to give you the same ignorance is bliss moment that I had in those through those young eyes from that day 
My mother was in a rare form, as though she was holding a bubble in her mouth, but not necessarily in a bad way, simply an inexplicable way, a meticulous way. I made my little path through the house and back around into the kitchen, and then there was this knock at the door. It couldn't have been later than like 5.30 in the morning at this particular moment, so this was strangely exciting. She told me I could open the door, which strictly speaking had been prohibited. I stood for a second immobilized, trying to decide if I was being tested, and after a brief moment decided an ass whipping would be totally worth the second of freedom. I went from being frozen by indecision to being frozen by not knowing what to do next as I was greeted by two strangers and I felt my mother crouch behind me. She introduced the first one, a woman, as my aunt, her sister. I knew of only one sister, the one that I was named after. And when I said that sister's name, this woman became extremely cross. And considering the sharp features that she was blessed with, this only accentuated those, which left me biting back emotions. But I quickly realized that she actually wasn't angry with me, but hurt with my mother that I didn't even know who she was. The second person was this young, jovial man who said that he was my mother's brother. He tried to seem cool and suave. Very soon, the house was bustling with my siblings awakening, and before we even really got to know them, something even more odd occurred. My stepmother, a person my mother regarded with contempt, showed up to pick the four of us up. When she did, my mother gave her a hug that was reciprocal. And I remember how uneasy that made me, which by the way is an entirely different episode to tell you how fucking weird the 80s were. As we were leaving, my father's outside, which is again another really, really weird moment considering how many times a sheriff would have to intervene in weekend visitations to allow us to see him. As we're driving away, another car pulls up to the house. So we go off and we spend the day with my stepmother doing all sorts of fun activities. Being the little skeptical child that I am, I know you guys are shocked. I ask my stepmother on multiple occasions, what's changed? I knew something was different deep down in my little bones and I could feel that old friend of mine, that red hot anger rising up into my ears whenever my inquisitive nature was being invalidated or that little pat on the head being disregarded. And after a long and admittedly exhaustingly fun day that she took us to get ice cream from McDonald's, which the narrators note, back in my day, kids, the ice cream machine was always working. And then we just made our way back home and I got no answer because nothing had actually changed. Nothing. Except that in the amount of time that us children were with my stepmother, possibly our entire worlds had changed. The sight that met us was something I'm not sure anything 
could have prepared us for. Cars and people everywhere. Family members all busy. A large U-Haul. My grandfather barking out orders. All of his sons following them. From what I remember, a handful of my aunts all working to pack and load. My mother directing a disagreement about which extra car my mother should take with us. My father was even removing things from the house. I stood there immobile for a long moment. And then I just ran into the house to make my round through what had become my home, my donut. I remember not knowing what was louder, the sounds of my footfalls echoing throughout this large empty house or the pounding of my heart in my ears. All other sounds had faded away. My second round through, I took it slow as I surveyed how perfectly empty it was, how immaculately our lives had been crammed into a truck in a matter of hours and the vestiges left behind. Those vestiges, pool table, recliner, stepdad's clothing, pool table, recliner, stepdad's clothing. That was virtually all that remained of a blended family. It was midway through my third round that I was stopped and told we would have to say goodbye to our stepbrother. I remembered thinking, I guess we squished too much in the van for him to fit. I also remembered myself growing more and more numb the more I saw my siblings cry. While I gave my stepbrother a hug, it didn't feel real if I'm being honest. I looked around to all the adults and I just remembered how inexplicably angry I was at every single one of them. How I expected to give them sugar. I knew good and damn well they had all planned this. Somehow, some way, they all showed up at the same time, same place, and did this to all of us, to the smallest of them. I didn't have the impeccable fucking vocabulary of the drunken sailor that I do now. So I just seethed silently behind red ears and clenched fists as each of them took my say away from me and piled us into that station wagon and we saw them in the back window grow smaller and smaller until they were nothing until the nothing was even hard to remember as the miles grew longer and longer and it became easier to complain about feeling cramped in a car or a sibling falling over asleep onto you eventually even that lost its glimmer and we learned state names that we previously didn't know. By the time my stepfather would have left work and come home to a cleaned out home, we were three states away. His son in the physical custody of his biological mother. I often thought of how shitty it must have been. My shoes were a fraction the size of his. 
I would sometimes imagine his footfalls echoing like the giant from the Jack and the Beanstalk, but that he would have the echo so loudly that it would tremble into the very core of his soul. The next morning in a shitty motel room off the side of some shitty highway, my mother would notify us that our stepfather was a bad man that wanted to do bad things to my sister. Like the moron that my half-brother was, he immediately believed it. My sister, I feel, while stunned from the prior day's events, had true difficulty swallowing that, however, did not step out of line. I sat seething, trying to puzzle it out. I knew he didn't do anything, wouldn't do anything. Hell, didn't have the time to do anything. I sat there trying to puzzle it out. It would take me a while though, to work through that immediate anger, the upcoming chaos, in order to reverse engineer the events that had transpired. Happy fucking birthday to me. I turned six years old on this trip. Off of Interstate 10. Six of us plus a smuggled family dog, which by the way was my dad's fucking dog, um, crammed into a cheap motel. And thus begins my tumultuous relationship with birthdays. I can only imagine my mother needed to go for maximum dramatic impact with that little maneuver. My sister and I had a whispered conversation about our stepdad, by the way. We both agreed he was nice and left it at confusion. I secretly kept my anger close at the surface. It's a, it's a trick that I pretty much held on to for many, many years. Another day on an endless road brought us to a moment in which a dark family secret was unveiled. Dun, dun, dun or one could imagine. It was the one in which my mother finally decided to let us in on the secret that we were Mexican, since we were now moving somewhere that was predominantly Mexican. Now, an important detail is that my sister and I were very, and I do mean very fair in complexion. But the more entertaining detail is the part where in front of her siblings, we all look at her and said, wait, what's Mexican? And the look on their faces, her siblings' faces. Yeah, yeah, she earned that shit. I love that now, many years later, I am fluent in Spanish and I know that her sister was absolutely bitching her out in Spanish because here she was, dragging her kids across the country, not knowing an absolute lick of Spanish. Meanwhile, our grandmother didn't speak English and we were gonna be living in an area where by and large, the kids spoke some English. So yeah, well done, round of applause in her little dramatic escape from a dude who didn't do shit to her kids there we go. Well done. The weeks that followed truthfully were a bit of a blur as we met people we had previously no idea even existed. People that were integral in a plan that had been in the works for quite some time. 
Eventually, my mother took us on this drive a couple of towns away to a post office where we picked up a letter from our grandparents. Enclosed was a check. After she closed it, she looked at us and informed us that we really wouldn't be hearing from them very often. When one of us spoke up, and I'm not sure which one of us it was, inquiring about our father, she snapped back that he was dead to us. It was not long after that check cleared, things began to shift. We moved into what had been a garage that had since been converted into like the world's smallest duplex, which just a side note, who knew you could convert a garage into a fucking duplex? But either way, that meant that we were no longer all crammed into my aunt's tiny little two-bedroom house. We were finally at this point allowed to speak with my grandparents. And it was in that first week after that conversation that the events of that previous month really began spilling into my six-year-old brain in that reverse pattern. This would repeat every so often over the course of that summer. And by the end of that, I not only knew that this had all been based on bullshit, but that there was only one real winner. It was just so hard for me to understand the whys. A six-year-old's brain is still not wired to understand the nuances of greed and power, even more so when these buck what society portrays those to appear. And make no mistake, my mother held fast to her story. And I knew our stepfather had done nothing of what she accused him. But one day she fucked up while telling a story of her childhood. And she mentioned how one must believe a lie so that they can sell the lie as truth. And I recognized two things. The first was she was correct. The second was every time she would say these things about our stepfather, she was managing to produce tears regardless of their veracity, which meant she believed what she said. And so I dug deeper in reverse until I finally made it to La Boutique. By this point, my mother had begun preparing my sister and I to walk to school in this tiny ass little dusty town. And in doing so, she had begun to tell us these boogeyman style stories of some proverbial rapist, or actually a literal rapist, not even a proverbial one, a literal rapist hiding behind every bush, which it's the desert. There actually weren't a lot of bushes. So wrong analogy. It was a fucking cactus. She should have used the fucking cactus would have made it feel more real. But either way, behind every bush that wanted to chop us up and mail us in a million pieces back home when they were done with us. So I had since then been able to put together what she had been trying to accuse my stepfather of. The knowledge in my possession were all of those outings, what she was doing with that stuff that she wanted for my sister from Le Boutique. That bit would drive me batshit crazy for a while. And it was something I realized I needed for my mother to explain to me. Now allow me to take a real quick pause. There was something that my father told me when he met me again as a teenager, while we shared a pot of coffee before bed, because that's 
definitely something normal fucking people do with their teenage kids. He took a drag from his cigarette, also something super fucking normal that you do over a pot of fucking coffee before bed. And he did this kind of chuckle that I have now grown accustomed to when he's about to share something about me that I generally could otherwise live without. He says, well, you haven't changed a goddamn bit. When you want something, nobody is going to get in your way or tell you otherwise. So as I make up as much empty airways as possible since the last episode, allow me to introduce a pastime that my mother introduced me to that is another confetti moment. Backgammon. Yes, the board game. She first showed me the general rules sans the gambling bit when I was three. By the time about six months went by, I was an actual contender. It would be something that she would use as a weapon later, but that road went kind of both ways. My mother was never the type to allow a kid to win just because they were a kid. She was brutal. She didn't care if a kid cried. If we were being honest, she probably got like a small measure of joy in it. Either way, it was a great opportunity to get her to talk. It didn't always work, but if you could pick just the right words in the right mood or at the right stage in her ego, it might give you the right clues. And eventually it did pay off. And she mentioned a supposed trash bag of clothes that my stepfather kept of little girl items. This was supposedly, or possibly I should say, the first moment that I realized this game was merely the vehicle to the real game where the rules were simple. Comfort your opponent pacify them into the position in which they offer up free information, which is something she never liked to do. She always cautioned us against it, but get her to do it anyway. Preferably critically free information that helps you piece together something you have been trying to solve. And as a kid with an inquisitive nature, I did have a mystery to solve. What they don't tell you about childhood trauma is how much of it will consume your here and now, even when you don't realize that it is. Even when you are living in the moment and the smallest thing will rip you back into that, that moment when your whole life changed and that will put you back to puzzling shit out. And whether you realize it then or not, that is perfectly okay. It's part of the process that navigates you to where you ultimately need to arrive. But holy fuck, will it bludgeon the shit out of you along the way. You could finally be coming to terms with whatever fresh hell you survived when someone, something, some event inadvertently has you reliving it or rehashing the wound. Ultimately, over the course of the next year, year and a half, several events would transpire and many backgammon games of wit that would offer the insight needed to leave me lying awake at night before the full picture would come barreling into focus like a freight train. The whole story would unfold and deconstruct before my eyes and it all went back to La Boutique just like I thought. The outings that I had come to love, the little bits of confetti that it had turned out had been gingerly lying atop those steaming ship pies. It was just putrid underneath. So my mother had this penchant for drama, a thirst for people buying into that and craved for those around her to view her as either the victor or the victim, but never the perpetrator or the villain. My stepfather was the polar opposite. 
he was easily repelled by drama as he wasn't one to seek out conflict and therefore wouldn't buy into what she was selling. Considering their marriage was one of convenience and created a larger divide. So she did what she did best and she just would go around spinning stories. In doing so, she was always looking for higher ground. And by that, do not misconstrue my meaning. I fully mean that in the disaster movie sense, whenever you see those sewer rats all running away from something unseen, that's my mother looking out for herself. Everyone else be damned. So she went to my paternal grandparents, the eternal Christians, and this is not like a dig on Christians. I'm talking about the ones that turn the other cheek and slap me again and just keep doing it. And no matter what somebody is doing, no matter how bad, like, oh, there's, you know, there's, there's hope for them and that, that kind, like they're just, they try to do the right thing no matter what, and no matter how horrible someone is. And either way, so she goes over there and she spun a story that he was a creep and that she discovered a trash bag in his closet that he used to masturbate to and that he had clothing items in it from other people, but that it looked like some of it maybe belonged to young women. The other thing that you need to know about my mother is she likes to weaponize feigned ignorance. It's a trick that she has used over and over and over, and she's not an ignorant woman, but yet people will buy it over and over and over. So either way, over the course of that year, before I went to school, we would add to that bag unbeknownst to me. So I got to be a pawn in this game. And she would go to my grandparents again and again, and eventually, they would interrogate us, my sister and I. Then there was the bathing suit. Then she would call a family meeting while we were at school and then asked if it stayed at their house because, oh my goodness, where was the bathing suit? And it did not. So people looked for it and several of them were at our house when it was so conveniently discovered in the back which if anybody has watched enough crime shows, we all know that this is called an orgy of evidence, but whatever, I guess the eighties were still a more innocent time. So fuck me y'all. So all of a sudden it is now an emergency to everyone. So then she begins to tell them how controlling he is, that he controls everything, you know, the money, you know, she has to tiptoe around him, all of this stuff. So now his ex-wife, which is my stepmother who's married to my dad, which is a story for another episode. Again, as I mentioned earlier, just to remind you guys, the 80s were weird as fuck. Okay, so now she has something to gain out of just kind of acquiescing to this whole thing, even though she did mention, well, that's a little out of character for him because she had lost their son, my stepbrother, brother, in the divorce and did want him back. So my mother had won her case essentially with the family, which included with my father because there was now something to gain because his wife, my stepmother, is now kind of on my mom's side, which is something that had never occurred. So maybe this is a way they could kind of iron some shit out. 
So now everybody's in agreement. They all have to get my sister away from this dude because he's a fucking creep. And what better way to do this than to hide her with my mother's family where he didn't know where they lived because truth be told, nobody 100% knew where my mother's family lived because my mother's family had just moved away from Los Angeles. So it was a pretty fresh. They only knew the more or less state. Nobody knew exactly where. Once she made the move, she notified my grandparents that if they so much as told my father where we were, they would never see us again. Also, hey, by the way, she wanted money from them every month so as to sustain us. That was the plan completely played out. So once I had reverse engineered it and then put it back in forward motion, it was one of those things where there was this cruel, cruel beauty in this plan once it was executed if you just had absolutely no heart and you weren't the one that was impacted. She literally had all of them working like her pawns and we, the children, paid the price, but she got everything she wanted and for years, she never even got her villain arc. I'm unsure of how through the years of torment, I was still able to hold on to the mysteries held in the dew, magic in the mist, secrets in the clouds, mysticism in the rainbows, but for that I am grateful. In the darkest of times, I could find a fantastic world in a cloud, a burgeoning society in a clump of soil. Maybe that was an escape, or maybe that is where I found my resilience. This leads me into a poem I recently wrote. And I'm just going to go into it. I haven't named it yet. I don't even think that I've finished it quite yet. Maybe we can give it a fancy title. Here it goes. It's the way the fog and clouds embrace the ridges and mountains, making the beholder certain they go up endlessly. Mist embracing the treetops, caressing branches gently. The peculiarly fabulous nature in which green-covered peaks glow the deepest ocean blue in the fading light. It's the majestic stature of evergreen standing proud, white dustings of snow amid the needles. How the moss covers trunks, rocks, bridges, sidewalks alike. It's the call of the geese that fly overhead in the morning, or the murder of ravens that watch over those beneath them. How the sky shimmers in the palette of cotton candy and the sunset can make the peaks erupt in beauty. The childlike joy of finding the perfect leaf after perfect leaf. It's the curve that gives birth to hidden mountaintops, opening to valleys, rivers, falls, instilling wanderlust around the next bend in the path beyond the horizon. Whenever it was hard to find beauty in the everyday moments in life, those were the places that I found beauty. And to this day, I still find beauty in those items, even as I have found and created beauty in my own life. And I say those things because even though I have created this, this podcast to, you know, make 
trauma, our collective bitch. Um, I also recognize that there may come a point where my story, and as I share stories and, and you know, have conversations with people that have also gone through, you know, some heavy shit, that it also may be what gives other people their armor to go through whatever shit they got to go through. There, there, we all have different things that give us that strength. And for me as a kid, it was having to find ways to still find beauty. And as a teenager as well, and as an adult as well, finding things in which I found beauty because that's what kept me present. All right, so we are finally at the end of this episode. But don't forget that I promised you guys an experimental segment piece called Tiny Little Traumas. So for today, allow me to just share a couple. And I want to keep today's overall theme lavatory based. So tiny little traumas, automatic flushing toilets. We all thought they would be fucking amazing. We don't have to touch the fucking handle. So it could be both amazing and the devil at the exact same time. I'm not a fan of touching the handle, by the way, or the stupid buttons. Cause you know, people are, people are gross, man. The amount of people I, I know, like in dude bathrooms, like they're horrible about washing their hands and not, you know, they don't shake their junk properly. I mean, it's, it's just gross, but in the, you know, female ones, it's not that much better either. Well, either way, my tiny little trauma is having the flush autonomy ripped violently away from me midstream before I can get out of dodge of be it cold breeze splash or fucking both. Like, for fuck's sake, can I finish pissing first? Alright, I'm going to give you one more tiny little trauma because I can't fucking stand this. Toilets with not enough, what do we want to call it, like headroom? Between, I don't know, like sensitive areas and the fucking water in the bowl? All right, disclaimer real quick. Sometimes there's just not not the moments where you can like hover as an option and one must just, I don't know, grit their fucking teeth and make do. Everything's all good and well until the tiniest fucking corner of that toilet paper brushes the top of the water and then that just chases the rest of the toilet paper like it is trying to light goddamn dynamite and then just the the, the ache factor is it's just a fucking crime it's a fucking crime that's all I have to say that there you go you have two of my laboratory based tiny fucking traumas if you would like to share any of your tiny little traumas that will absolutely send you fucking overboard they don't have to be toilet based but by all means if that's the where your brain is headed because that's where mine was at today. Feel free to share them. Audrey at traumasoup.com. I'd love to fucking hear it. In the meantime, while I have a list 
of tiny little traumas that could take us around the world and back. To quote my friend Nanu's wise word, words, I shan't blow my trauma load right out of the gate, even if it is just in the micro load variety. So until next time, you gluttons for trauma. Thank you.